Happy New Year! Christmas is over in two weeks, you know. Absolutely amazing the way time flies. We used to have those, what we call the moron jokes. And one of the moron jokes was, uh, why did the moron throw the clock out the window? And that was because he wanted to see time fly. And that's the story of my life, is time flying. It just flies away, and before you know you've been there, it's already over. And But God has designed eternity to take care of that problem. So if we'll use our time wisely, we'll have a great and a blessed eternity, if you please. These messages on salvation words are enormously important. Tragically, most evangelical pulpits in America are biblically illiterate. When I get magazines that are designed for preachers to to look at, it's the latest in marketing techniques and psychological information, and their, their knowledge of God's Word is, to be nice about it, minimal. And one of the reasons our hymnody, our hymn singing in our churches has degenerated so much is because there is so little appreciation for the doctrines of the Scripture, the truths of Scripture. If you don't know what grace means, amazing grace doesn't mean anything to you. If you don't know what the word grace means. And uh, if you don't know what the word redeem means, what the songs about redemption, they're irrelevant to you. And the problem of the reason the old music is irrelevant mainly is because the old doctrines are irrelevant. The main basic doctrines and doctrinal truths of Scripture are irrelevant to most Christians today. And I am just trying in some detail to explain these basic salvation words in such a fashion that somebody's asking you questions, you will remember enough core truth out of these sermons to help them to understand these things. You don't need to be able to under, uh, explain all the details that I explain to you, but I'm doing that to give you a basic conceptual understanding of what's going on. So if somebody asks you a question, what do you mean we're saved by faith? What would you tell them? What would you tell them? Okay. You ought to be able to tell them something. You ought to be able to remember enough. And that's why I'm giving you outlines so you can read, you can see, you can hear. And hopefully this will be helpful to you. And also, your Bible reading takes on new significance if you know what these words mean. All of Paul's epistles begin with this same thing, and it's all Christianese, it's all words that we throw around and nobody understands. Grace and peace unto you from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, what does he mean, grace be to you? He says, I want your life to be filled with divine favor. And the word peace, shalom, blessedness. I want divine favor and blessedness to be yours in abundance. And it all comes from God who is in related to us as a father and through our Lord Jesus Christ. And as you read through scripture, you should be more than just reading words. And so uh, the more you understand these things, the more your heart be, is filled with praise and awe and wonder. And the word worship takes on a new meaning because God becomes so awesome and incomprehensible and wonderful. You just can't understand how he could love you and love me and relate to us on a personal level. He's he's our creator. He's our redeemer. uh, He's our origination. He's our continuation. He's our consummation. He's all of this stuff. He's a great God. We don't just come to spend time in church on Sunday morning and Sunday night. We have a God that is worthy of us taking time to spend with him and learn of him and praise him and thank him and 
and, and, and find some cause for rejoicing, you'll not get it in the evening news, I'll promise you. It's no wonder everybody's going to psychiatrists now and the medical, the medical insurance is loaded up with, with, with expenses for emotional help, health nowadays. The emotional health goes when your relationship with God goes. The only way to have emotional health is to know God and to be able to lean on him and trust in him and walk with him. So it, it's more than just sermons and just words. I, 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 want you to, I want you to grasp these truths. Now, this will be my third message on this one outline. So we're going to go through page one. We define faith. Let's just go to where we got to go because I must finish it today if the Lord will give me grace and strength to do so. Uh, page number two. Uh, we have the dynamics. How does it work? Uh, faith connects us uh, to the righteousness of God. And that's the only righteousness that can ever avail uh, to give us a standing before God, whether it's as a Christian or whether it's as a sinner needing salvation. The only way we get the righteousness of God is through faith. And uh, page three, we said that true saving faith is an exercise of the heart. It's not just some kind of an intellectual exercise, figuring everything out, uh, but it's personal. And then we went to that important part on the last half of page three, and what saving faith is not. And, and we said that just believing the right things is not faith. Giving assent to historical facts is not faith. Faith is a moral application of truth where I accept that truth, I apply it to my heart. True saving faith has content. It confesses, it, it makes, it is a statement of agreement that Jesus is my Lord. He's not only Lord, he's Lord over me. He is Lord, period. And it is a heart belief God raised him from the dead. And true saving faith on page four has an object and that object is Jesus Christ. In him I receive everything I need. I receive the payment of sin. I receive righteousness. I receive everything I need. And so we talked about the object of faith. And then we emphasize that faith in and of itself does not save us. It's like a rope. It, it connects us with the one who saves us. And the one who saves us is Jesus Christ. Faith, faith by, in and of itself does not save it is not the strength of our faith that guarantees salvation. It's the strength and power of Jesus Christ. And he has power to save from everything and anything. And he has power to save anybody under any circumstances that will come to him. So uh, we said that saving faith is not inconsistent with doubts and fears. Then we came to the basis of faith. Now we want to go to page six, faith and works. Again, I want to emphasize the fact that religion, let me give you again a definition of religion. Religion is man by his own efforts, regardless of what form they may assume. Man by his own efforts seeking to improve himself until he becomes acceptable to God. This is 99% of the religion of the world. Our Catholic friends are just in torment with guilt because they don't have an adequate Savior. They are trying to improve themselves. They don't know what it is to have imputed righteousness, the righteousness of Jesus Christ put to their account. They have no concept of what it means. 
not only to have negatively sins forgiven, but positively to have the righteousness of God put to my personal account by God himself and nobody can reverse it. See, the righteousness of God. So man is seeking to improve himself. It won't work. It can't work. There is no righteousness that can meet God's standard except God's righteousness. And the wonderful news is he freely gives it to us and imparts it to us in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. And if we have Jesus Christ, we have his righteousness. Try that on for size. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that wonderful? God is, everything God requires, God provides. And nobody else could provide it because nobody else is big enough or good enough to do it. So faith and works. So Paul says very plainly, Romans 3, verse 21, the top of page number 6. Will you follow along? Now read along, please digest this as we go, all right? But now apart from the law, that's our works. The righteousness of God has been manifested, openly revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through what? Faith in Jesus Christ. For some of those who believe, all right, who gets the righteousness of God? All who believe. Am I right in that? Is that what it says now? Check it. For right, for all who believe, okay? For there isn't any distinction. And in this case, he's talking about the religious Jews and the non-religious pagans. There's no, relig- there's no difference between the religious world and the pagan world because everybody has sinned and everybody falls short of God's glory, which is the standard of his divine perfection. Nobody but nobody but nobody measures God's standard of divine perfection. Everybody falls short of the glory of God, period, end of statement. Can anybody here contradict that? Anybody here that does not fall short of the glory of God? Do you know anybody that does not fall short of the glory of God? All right? There's no distinction then. For then he says, verse 24, are you with me now? Look at verse 24. Being justified through the most sincere religious efforts you can put forth. Are you reading? Being justified how? And the word justified means, give me the A word, acquitted. Tried and acquitted. Tried and acquitted. Okay? Being justified for just a little bit of money. As a what? A gift. Now, are you awake? A gift is not a gift unless it meets two qualifications. A gift must be given freely and without obligation or it is not a gift. We are justified as a gift. It's freely given to us without obligation. The second qualification of a gift is it must be received freely and without payment. The moment I pay you for a gift, it's not mine as a gift at that point. It ceases to be a gift. It's mine by right of purchase. All right? So being justified as what? A gift. How? By his grace, his divine favor. Through the repurchase, that's redemption, the repurchase which is in Christ Jesus. So that's how faith works. Faith connects me with Jesus Christ which in whom I get everything else I need. I get repurchase, I get justification. It's all in him. It's all wrapped in one package. These are just simply different, different gems on the diamond. They, they, they are just different aspects of the same salvation. Okay, justification, repurchase, grace. Okay, all right. So, so 
Paul goes on then, and let's look at the New American Standard there that I've got to get on to Galatians very quickly here. Romans 10.8, that's the second paragraph here. What does it say? The word is near you in your mouth, in your heart. That is the word of what? Faith, which we are preaching. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be, no, you might be. You won't find out till you get to heaven. You might in the, in the future sometime. No, he says you will be saved, okay? Verse 10, for with the heart a man person believes and it results in righteousness. With the mouth he confesses, it results in salvation. The scripture says, whoever what? Whoever works hard, whoever keeps the sacraments, Whoever trusts the preacher or the rabbi, whoever is a Baptist, whoever has been baptized. Well, this is where the whole religious world is. Am I right? This is where the whole religious, whoever, what? What's the next word? Believes in who? In him. Who's him here? The Lord Jesus. The word disappointed means shamed. Will not be shamed. King James says ashamed. But the word ashamed means that I have done something to cause the shame. If I say I have been shamed, it means you did something to cause me shame. And God's word says everyone who believes on him will not be shamed. God will never shame you. You will never stand disappointed or shamed if you believe on him and trust in him. What a statement. It speaks of certainty. Whoever believes in him will not be disappointed, will not be shamed. Verse number 12, there is no distinction between the Jew and the Greek, the religious, the non-religious. The same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who are baptized. For all who what? Call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And down in the Greek language in verse 13, it says, everyone, pas, everyone, whoever he may be. That's what the Greek text says. Everyone, whoever he may be, who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Wow, what a statement. Oh, but you can, nobody can know he's going to go to heaven when he dies. Well, wait just a minute. I just read something that says you can be certain about it now. Everyone, whoever he may be, who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Whose word is that? Can I believe God? Does God lie? Who's the one that does the saving? God, can anybody contradict him? Who has the power to contradict God in this business? We're going back to Romans. We've been there. Okay? Now we go to Galatians. Very clear statement. Nevertheless, knowing. Oh, that's an interesting word. Knowing, that means you think it through and you, you, you grasp this with your mind. You, you've thought this thing through. You know. You know that the opposite is not true. This, this, this is a statement that is to be believed. Knowing that a man is not justified. He's not acquitted by the works of the law. Wow. So if a person says you keep the Ten Commandments to get to heaven, he's wrong. Is that? Oh, wait a minute. Is he wrong? Or is he right? If a, if a person says you get to heaven by keeping the Ten Commandments, is he wrong or is he right according to this? Help me. He's wrong. He's not right. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Okay? Even we believed in Jesus, so we may be justified by faith, not by the works of the law. Now, he just repeats himself. Since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. So here we have a grasping and understanding of the truth. You know that a man is not, though the law can never get you to heaven. 
Number two, there's a proper response in faith alone, in Christ alone. We have believed in Jesus Christ so we might be justified by faith and not by the works of the law. And there's a glorious outcome. Notice Galatians 3.26. This is a precious verse. Galatians 3.26. You are all what? And how are you sons of God? Through faith in whom? Okay, through faith in your religious works. Through faith in your church. Through faith in your belief system. No, through faith in a person, Jesus Christ. This is very personal, okay? How the Bible describes works designed to make us righteous. Wow. Isaiah 64. All of us have become like one who is unclean. All our righteous deeds are like a what? A filthy garment, and, and, and it would be crude for me to tell what the literal Hebrew says here. It's something you wouldn't, wouldn't want to handle. And so, so all of our righteous deeds are like what? So are these righteous, righteous deeds then going to be acceptable to God? Are we ever, listen, as a Christian, are you ever going, to be, ever going to be good enough to deserve God's goodness in your life? Will you ever be able to do, do that? Never. Give it up. Let him be your righteousness. Let him be your joy, your hope. Let him be everything. Notice all of us wither like a leaf. All our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. Titus 3, 5. Look at this carefully. He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done how? Help me. Deeds we've done how? In righteousness. Not on the basis of deeds we've done how? In righteousness. But according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. There's only one work that's acceptable to God for salvation, and Jesus describes it, John 6, 29. Jesus answered and said unto them, This is the work of God that you what? Believe. And here we've got that preposition. We believe into him whom he has sent. Somebody says, Well, if you can't be saved, then you just live like the devil, and it's all going to be all right. Wow. Wow, 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 wow. Doesn't work that way. I will never forget, and I've got, to, I've got to keep moving here. I will never forget a, a, a gentleman when I was in Yucca Valley pastoring there, and we had a gentleman come. He was a godly fellow, loved the Lord. He'd been genuine to say, but he was a member of a, of a Pentecostal kind of a church, and, and, and he believed in that song, you must be born again and again and again and again. He, he thought you could lose your salvation. And, and he, he said, I, I thought you Baptists, you, you believed if you're once saved, you're always saved, and, and there's no way you can be unsaved. And he said, he said, I thought, well, then what difference does it make? How do you live, you see? But he said, I've been coming to your Baptist church for a little while here, and I find out your people live better than people that are f- afraid of losing their salvation. He said, it doesn't work that way, does it? I said, no, it doesn't work that way. Anybody that knows Jesus Christ in the sense that we're talking about will love him, honor him. Obey him if we can, as much as we can. This does not lead to licentious living. It leads, it, it leads to holy living and godliness. If you've been born again, you have a new life in you that doesn't like the old life. We're going to, we'll talk about that. That's one of the, the new birth being born. Regeneration's coming up. We'll talk about that. Now, page seven. This is very important stuff. Page seven is very important stuff. Page 7 is very important stuff. Unbelief is a great sin. 
underline that. In the passage we're going to look at in just a moment on John 3, in the passage, in this passage, the moral nature of unbelief is on full display. Now hear me. I don't know what I'll do. Pastors ask me if I won't bring the message on Christmas Day on Sunday morning. One of my favorite texts on on the Lord Jesus is in John's Gospel chapter 1. And a couple of things that are just absolutely unthinkable. Jesus came into the world. He was in the world, and the world did not recognize him. This is amazing. The world did not recognize its own creator. I would say if your son or your daughter didn't recognize you, that would be unforgivable. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. And that was even more unforgivable. The highlight at the top of page 7. Read it, please. God holds man morally responsible for his personal response to God's provision of salvation as outlined and declared through the message of the gospel. There is no excuse for unbelief. When we say morally, the word moral means relating to the principles of a right and wrong, good and bad in behavior. Now let's take a look at John's Gospel, chapter 3, verse number 17. This is the New American Standard translation here. God did not send his son into the world to judge the world. Now, what's verse 16? All right. God so loved the world, right? That he gave his only begotten, his uniquely begotten son. In order that literally everyone, pos, everyone, not not, whosoever is fine. But the Greek is more distinct, more direct. Everyone who believes into him, into him will not perish. Will not lose everything in disintegration and, and eternal loss. Will not perish, but will have eternal life. Now, this is the explanation. God didn't send his son into the world to judge the world. The biggest lie there is out there is that God sends people to hell. And that we, as Christians, are trying to condemn everybody that's a sinner. We are not in the condemnation business. We're in the redemption business. That is our mission as a church. That is our mission as a church. God never, God is not willing that any should perish. The only reason men perish is because they choose to perish and they choose not to believe. You say, oh, what about evolution? No, that won't wash. Nobody's seen him. He's never been around. There's no divine revelation of evolution anywhere. I beg of you scientifically to prove his existence. You can't do it. Let's look at it again. God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be what? Saved, rescued through him. So somebody says God sends the people. No, 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 no. That's a lie because Jesus never would have come if that was God's purpose. Why in the world did Jesus come if God wanted to send people to hell? Doesn't make sense. Doesn't make sense. Verse 18, he who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already. Now here is the reason. Because he has not believed in the name of the uniquely begotten Son of God. This is the nature of the judgment. This is how it takes place. This is is the nature of it. Light came into the world. That's the Lord Jesus. And men love the darkness rather than the light. Because their deeds were paniros, their deeds were evil. They were aggressively, decidedly, willfully evil. 
This is a matter of the will. It's a matter of moral belief. It's a matter of moral choice. It is not a matter of intellectual necessity. That's what John is saying here. And he is right on target. He is right on target. So we read on. Let's look at verse 19 again. This is the judgment. Light has come into the world. Men loved, loved. That's a moral attachment. It's a choice. Men loved the darkness. They chose the darkness. They were attached to the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were aggressively evil. For everyone who does evil, what? Hates the light. Who is the light? It's God. It's Jesus. And does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. Verse 18. Note the note under that that passage. Has been judged already. This is already, he he has already sealed his own tomb. Now he can change his mind. But what he has done is totally condemnatory in its nature. He can't undo it except by faith in Jesus Christ. He is already under judgment, not for something that he is going to do in the future, but for a disposition that already governs his moral refusal to believe. Now I am amazed And how many Christians tolerate this notion that God sends people to hell? I am amazed at how many people buy this disposition that that unbelief is not a choice. It's it's a scientific or moral necessity. No, it's not. Notice John 3.36. We're in the middle of the page now. He who believes in the Son, literally into the Son, is having, that's in the present, is having as his possession eternal life. He who does not obey. This is, this is an interesting Greek word. It's the word for disobedience. You know, what, what does it mean when your child disobeys you? Um, the, the, the root word in the Greek language means to be persuaded. And, and uh, to disobey is not to be persuaded. It is a moral refusal to be persuaded. He he who disobeys, that, that, that is a moral choice the child makes not to be persuaded by what you told him. That's, what, that's why disobedience is so bad. It's the nature of disobedience. So he who believes into the Son has eternal life. The one who refuses to be persuaded, who does not obey the Son, will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Why? Because belief is an issue of the heart, not the head. It's based on a person's moral disposition toward God. Underline that. Underline that. God does not force anyone to be saved. In the moment we're talking here, we're going to talk about election and predestination. How many of you would like to make love to a telephone pole? Take it home with you. Take it to bed with you. Make love to that thing. It doesn't have a will. Without without the capacity to choose, you do not have the ability to love. Think that one through. Without the ability to choose, you do not have the capacity to love. In order that we might love God, we had to be free to choose him or not to choose him. So we come to election and predestination. Somebody asked me a couple Sundays ago, uh, what about this business of election? And we were talking about, of course, faith in Christ. Well, what difference does it make? Well, let's, let's just talk about these two words. And I, I take several sermons to try to explain some of this. And most of it is what we call inexplicable. You can't explain it. Special notes on election and predestination. Are you ready? Fasten your seatbelts. Let's look at it. 
Our responsibility and accountability to believe and trust in the Lord Jesus is nowhere in all the scriptures connected in any way to the truths about election and predestination. Election and predestination are the works of God involved in our salvation. Believing on the Lord Jesus is the moral responsibility of man. God is absolutely sovereign and also man is fully morally responsible at the same time. The absolute sovereignty of God and the genuine free moral agency of man are both irreconcilable truths of Scripture. Election and predestination are God's business and believing is ours. Find me one verse in Scripture that says, that if you are elected, you will be automatically saved. The way to get to heaven is to be predestined or elected. Now, the problem we have is this. I, I see some of you coming awake now. The problem we have is this. Everybody here who is genuinely saved has been elected by God and predestined by God, without exception. But if God has the power to, dis to determine how I'm going to decide, and how can he be sovereign if he doesn't have that power, then how can I be a free moral agent and have the capacity to choose and have the capacity to love? Now, when you figure that out, please write it out and tell me and explain it to me. Now, very quickly, God is too big to fit into our brains. God does not fit into the human brain. And all of the truths of Scripture do not fit into the human brain either. You have a God that created a universe with three trillion galaxies, and you, you, you say you're going to explain predestination and election to me? God's too big for all of this. I don't understand how it works. I understand that I can give you a whole plethora of verses that say you were saved by faith, you were responsible to trust Jesus Christ, to exercise your moral will, and choose the Son of God to be your Savior. I cannot find one verse of Scripture that says you have a moral responsibility to become elect or predestined. Not one. But I find evident truth in Scripture that if you're saved, you are elect. And all the elect will be saved, and all the predestined will be saved. I can prove that in the Scriptures, but I can't prove how the two can be reconciled one to the other. I, 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 I'm sorry. And what we have is we have theologians and guys that are writing books that they're, they're, they put God in a box. And the problem is God's too, put, too big to put into anybody's theological box. He does not fit. The human mind cannot. It was, I think, Samson's father that had met the angel of the Lord. And he said, I want to know your name. And the angel of the Lord said, what do you mean you want to know my name? It's incomprehensible. If I told you, your, your brain isn't big enough to grasp it. These truths are beyond human. That God would love a sinner such as I? Explain that. That doesn't make sense. That I could stand acquitted before God because of the death of his son. That doesn't make sense. Explain it, please. None of these things make sense. They come out of the heart and mind of God. They're too big for me and I can grasp them as much as I can. But I'm limited. So let's take a look at these verses very quickly here. John 6, 28. This is the work of God that you believe him whom he has sent. Not that you become elect. Where's election in that? Romans 8, 29. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Wow. And I don't understand how that fully works. But here it says you were predestined because he knew what you were going to do in advance. But even that, if we get into a logical discussion, is going to cause lots of problems. 
Acts 2.23, this man, this Lord Jesus, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. You nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men. You put him to death. How does that work? Page number 8, let's go right, let's move right along. 1 Peter 1.2, elect, here we find that word election. Elect according to what? The foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit. So, if you're saved, you're elect. If you're saved, you're predestined. But there isn't anyone that says you need to worry about whether you're elect or not. Somebody says, well, if you're elect, you're going to get saved. No, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says if you believe, you're going to get saved. They, then, they, they, then they take that to its logical conclusion. This is, has to, everything has to fit into their theological box. And then they say, well, Jesus died only for the elect. No, Paul flatly says he died for all, for everyone. It's a flat clear statement of scripture. So your system of logic, no matter where you want to land here, is going to run in deep trouble. You better just figure out what does the scripture teach clearly and plainly and stick with all of it, whether you can put it together in one box or not. Doesn't fit in the box, that's okay. That makes sense to you? And, and we have preachers that are going to seed on this predestination and election stuff. It's an important teaching. Because once we are saved, we are elect. And once we are laid elect, nothing can reverse that. There's no reversal. Look at Romans chapter 8. God is the one who justifies, who can condemn. If God justifies, nobody can undo it, is what he says. It's irreversible. It's irreversible. So we have such a great and marvelous salvation. Well... Let's take a look quickly. Let's just let's just go through this. Hurry through. Have you got a seatbelt there? You got a seatbelt? Fasten it. Fasten it. Are you ready? Results of saving faith. Well, we have assurance. The Spirit Himself testifying with our spirit. We're children of God. That oh, what a we have that song. Blessed assurance. There's peace. Uh, having been justified by faith, we're having peace with God. Uh, through our Lord Jesus Christ. There's rest. We who believe enter into a rest, a cessation from all works. And it means we're trusting. There's a song in our hymn book, you don't know it. Jesus, I am resting, resting in the joy of what you are. I am finding out the greatness of your loving heart. And it goes on to talk about the greatness of our salvation in him. There's a rest. We're not having, we're not all upset night after night. Am I going to make it to heaven? What haven't I done that I need to do? Am I good enough? All that's gone. We're at rest because it's been done. Listen, if it's done, there's nothing left to do. And if there's something left to do, then it's not done. But it is done. And there is nothing left to Except, give me the R word, rest. All right. Joy. Peter, you rejoice greatly with joy inexpressible and full of glory. You've, you've not seen him, but you love him. Though you don't see him now, you believe in him. There's great rejoicing. Top of page nine. Good works. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Notice the word created in Christ Jesus. Creation is the work of, as a supernatural work of God, putting something in place that does not exist unless God makes it and puts it in place. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for, literally, upon good works. This was God's program. This transformation of life brings us into the kingdom of God, and the kingdom of God is not based on evil, it's based on righteousness and good things. Three steps. How do you get this? Believe 
Everyone who is believing into him will not perish. Secondly, as many as received him. This is an act of the will. Believing is a moral act of the will in John 3. Receiving is a moral act of the will in John 1.12. And calling is a moral act of the human will in Romans 10.13. Whosoever, everyone, whoever he may be, who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, the Bible describes a faith that does not save. It is not a genuine faith. It is a mock faith. It is a works-based faith. But there is a faith that does not save. James 2, what does it profit, my brethren, though a man say he has faith and have not works? Can, and literally in the Greek text, it's got the article there, can that faith save him? And it can't. A faith that does not transform the life is not a saving faith. Now, you don't have a perfect life after you get saved. I want to ask you again, and I think I should ask you to raise your hands. How many of you would be absolutely excited and delighted if you could live from now on and never sin one more time? How many would love it like that? Come on. The rest of you want to sin the rest of your life? Help me with it. See? Well, what does salvation do to you? You have a different relationship with sin when you get saved. You don't like it anymore. You don't want it anymore. You'd like to live apart from it from now on. You'd like it to be gone out of your life. And a a, a faith that does not do that to you is not a saving faith. That's simply what James is saying. Romans 13, I found this very interesting. If I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but do not have love, become a noisy gong. If I have a gift of prophecy and all mysteries, all knowledge, have all faith as to remove mountains, but don't have love, I'm nothing. If I give my possessions to feed the poor, surrender my body to be burned, do not have love. It profits me nothing. And the note under there in the blue font, it is possible to do all of these things for reasons of personal aggrandizement and the pride of spiritual accomplishment. And if so, they are useless to God. You say, what about sincere religious people? That is no substitute for genuine saving faith. No substitute for genuine saving faith. No matter how sincere, in this this case, they go to the extent of giving their body to be burned. Absolutely amazing. And there's no profit. The bottom line of faith, we're at the bottom of page nine. Can I believe God? That's the bottom line. Dear lady, and I think... I may be mistaken here, so, but I believe it was at, a, at one of the evangelistic meetings of evangelist D.L. Moody. I think it was D.L. Moody. And a lady came up to him after the service, and he had preached a sermon like this. And, and she, she just was awestruck. It was the first time in her life she realized that she could be forgiven all her sins without works. That by trusting Jesus Christ, she could be made righteous. And that she could know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, she could know that she had eternal life as her own present personal possession. And she said to D.L. Moody, she said, I, I just... And it wasn't, it wasn't a belligerent kind of thing. It wasn't a, an argumentative kind of thing. She says, I just can't believe that. In other words, this is too good to be true. I just can't believe that. And with, with, I think, the filling of the Holy Spirit, he responded this way. He said, dear lady, it's not what you can believe. It's 
who you can believe. Can you believe God's word? Because God's word comes from God. Can you believe God? This is the bottom line of faith. Who you can believe. And the bottom line of faith is, can I personally, completely, believe and trust God? When God says, whosoever, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, whoever he may be, will be rescued, delivered, saved from eternal judgment. Everybody believing, everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. As many, everyone who receives him gets authority from God to become his child, his birthed one. Can I believe that? And the answer is yes. You can believe that. Three instances, we have Romans, Galatians, and James, and it's the same statement, Abraham believed God. And it was put on his account as what? Righteousness. How did it get there? He believed God. He believed God. And if you're here today and you've not trusted the Lord Jesus and just put all of your faith, I'll explain one more time what we went through last Sunday. And Jesus said, or John says, everyone who is believing into Jesus Christ will not perish. Believing into Jesus Christ simply means this. You take all of your confidence, all of your hope, all of your trust out of everything else, and you simply place it all into Jesus Christ. And the promise is, everyone who is believing into him will not, what? Perish, but will have eternal life. Everyone. Everyone, whoever he may be, unconditionally, who calls on the name of the Lord, will be rescued, saved, rescued from divine judgment. So if you're here today, you simply call on his name. Believe, place, take all your faith, say, Lord Jesus, I'm putting it into you, and I am receiving you personally into my life as my Savior and Lord today. I'm calling on your name to save me from my sin and my eternal judgment. And I'm taking your promise by faith. And I'm receiving, Lord Jesus, in you everything that I need for eternal life. Lord Jesus, come now. Save me now. Live in me now. Be my Savior now and forever. You've never done that. Do that. He's a great Savior. Sang about him the first hymn this morning. Our great Savior. Our great and our wonderful Savior. Father in heaven, do your work by your Holy Spirit in all of our hearts here today. God in heaven, may we trust you completely and implicitly. May we place all of our hope and all of our trust in you because you are the one who loved us. You are the one who gave his son for us. You are the one who has done everything he can to save us. You've provided everything we need. God, I pray that all of us will not only trust you, but we will completely rest. We will completely rest in you. God, Touch our hearts. If any are not genuinely saved by faith in Jesus, may they do that now. May they call now. May they receive now. May they trust now. And may we go out of this place with a message of hope. You did not come into the world, Lord Jesus, to condemn the world, to judge the world. You came to avoid that, to do everything you could in your power to avoid that from happening. May we respond positively to that message now, we pray. In Jesus' wonderful name, amen.
Let's sing the same one we sang last. Can you find it, Pastor? Only trust him. Let's sing that on our way out today. Somebody give me the, the look it up and give me the, the number on that. 478, find that. 478, find that in your hymn book. Saving faith. And may the Lord grant that every one of us has experienced this in our lives.